To fight change is to fight life. To embrace change is to embrace life. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Hello, shit shows. How is it going? Three things. Number one, do you ever experience buyer's remorse when it comes to takeout? I ordered a pizza about 30 minutes ago. And then about 15 minutes after that, I'm like, why did I order this pizza? I did not need to order this pizza. I have food in the fridge that I could eat. Uh, I feel like most people get buyer's remorse when the, the Amazon box shows up. But for me, I get that buyer's remorse when the damn pizza box shows up. Number two, do you remember that creepy dude I went on a date with, I don't know, it was probably two months ago, and he was like way older than he claimed, and he was like creepily touching me and whispered in my ear at the end, when will I get to see you again? And then I just ran out of that place. So I was just on a walk, and I was stopping into this corner store to to get some milk, and as I walk in, I see him at the counter, and I immediately turn around and went home, and I will be going to get some milk after I record this shit. And number three, if you're not watching this Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, you must watch the cross-examination from the past two days, especially if you are a reality TV lover. You need to watch this shit. It is some of the best reality TV that I've ever seen, and it really feeds my uh, laundry list trade of we became addicted to excitement because I'm fucking watching this shit all damn day. So today we are diving deep with David Lindell. He is an artist. He is a recovery coach, a spiritual coach, and he's also a part of the Suquamish and Tulalip tribes. So I've been wanting to have a native on the podcast because I know that this is a an ethnic group that has been subjected to some horrendous trauma and the intergenerational trauma is just so rampant. So Lucy suggested I connect with David. He works at or used to work at the outpatient rehab that Lucy went to. This is a very, very, very powerful discussion. This is somebody who has endured great pain and suffering. And his outlook on life is absolutely remarkable given all that he has endured. Uh, I wanted to read you guys a text that he sent me this morning. It says, Today is a good day to have a good day. Change is the inherent truth of life. To fight change is to fight life. To embrace change is to embrace life. Why would we want to say to ourselves and others that change is hard? When we are paralyzed with fear to the point of hiding from or attempting to avoid change, we effectively quit living and are only surviving. Life as an epic journey of discovery can be so full. What wonder may be around the next bend? Much may be unremarkable. Yes, there will be tragedy also. We will not know until we move forward, conquer fear, move forward, claim those victories and those blessings. And that pretty much sums up the message that I'm trying to convey in this podcast. 
you know, my intention in creating this. And I, I realize <laughs> I think I'm saying my intention in creating this. I think I way over say that. Uh, can you let me know if <laughs> if that's annoying or if there's any other kind of weird things that I say that really shouldn't be said like howdy ho like that probably doesn't need to be used more than i don't know once a year uh but my intention in creating this podcast was to let you know that there is a path to healing and change and on top of that that path is truly a gift and an honor it is a privilege to walk that path because we get to go on this journey to the soul we get to go further inward than most people and fully uncover our soul, our our highest and our best selves. We get to figure out what makes us special, where we shine, what is our purpose. And I truly believe that every single one of us comes into this life with, with some sort of a greater spiritual purpose. And I truly believe that the adversity that we encounter, the pain, the suffering, that is the vehicle to get us there. So I've shared part of hitting my adult child bottom was the realization that I had been selling myself short in life and that all I had cared about was finding a guy and getting married. And not once had I considered what a fulfilling life would look like for me and specifically a fulfilling career. And I think I've also shared that right around that time when I had that realization, I heard this quote where passion, purpose and skill collide, true bliss resides. After I heard that, uh, it really that really struck a chord with me. And so after I heard that, I I wrote down what do I think my purpose and my passions and my skills are. So I want to read this to you. So this is I wrote this in 2018. So this is at least two and a half years before uh, the podcast idea came to me. And so for my purpose, I said, inspiring and empowering people to bring their authentic selves to all situations and interactions, to be unapologetically themselves, to act silly and to laugh at themselves without concern of what others may think. And then for passion, I wrote conversations of depth and meaning related to pretty much any topic, but especially dark, seedy topics such as addiction, prostitution, homelessness, mental illness, prison and crime. And then for my my skills, I wrote down breaking the ice in a very unique way, building authentic relationships at lightning speed, um, listening and processing information very quickly, asking questions or having insights that other would not have thought of or wouldn't feel comfortable asking. And it's pretty damn crazy how this podcast is checking all the damn boxes. I encourage y'all to do this exercise. What is your purpose? What are your passions? What are your skills? And I think these three things together make up our our purpose, our spiritual purpose um, in this life. All right, let's move it along to David. I do want to say that the audio was pretty shoddy on his end. If you're having a hard time hearing it, I listen to it with headphones. Uh, I listened to the whole thing with headphones. I could understand it all, but I just wanted to say that. I have performed surgery on this, this file for y'all many, many hours to make this as clear as possible. And that's also why you should join the Patreon, right? To to show your appreciation for all the editing that I do. You know, I do all of this shit myself, folks. Okay. I am doing everything. I am a one-man band at this point in time. So 
join the Patreon, help a girl out, participate in some peer support groups, embrace change, look forward to change, and join the damn Patreon for as little as $1.25 a week, okay? I know you got it, so join the Patreon. Patreon.com slash adult child. And of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify and know that there's a bunch of new listeners out there. The deal here is that you give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify immediately. Uh, thank you. Change gonna come. Uh, yeah. Uh huh. They say a change gonna come. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It is my pleasure to introduce David Lundell. He is a spiritual teacher. He is a recovery coach. He's very involved with the Wellbriety movement, which we'll get into. And he's also a member of both the, oh my God, I'm going to screw it up. To Laylip and say it again, Squamish. 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 Yeah. Please forgive me. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. It's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, you too. So I wanted to start with the soul wound. I've been reading up about that some. Lucy mentioned it when I had her on the podcast um, and wanted to know if you could speak a little bit on that. The soul wound, what I would consider that to be is, you know, Native Americans actually believe that there's four aspects of the self. And when we become out of balance, we become out of touch with our spirit. Mm -hmm. And uh, much of that um, imbalance is caused from past trauma, which gives us emotional and mental disturbance, you know, from some of the things that we've taught to dysfunctional family and stuff as, as young children. Um, we know that most of our core beliefs and value system is in place by the time we're five years old, you know, and uh, it's a hard thing, as you know, to overcome. We get to a point in our life where we realize there are Things that aren't working as far as getting us to that happy place that we're trying to be. When we're going to recovery, we think that everything is going to be so wonderful and everything once we're recovered. And then we come to find out that there were issues in place before we became addicted. Mm -hmm. And uh, much of what I would consider the soul wound is actually the soul or the spirit being covered up, you know, and... So therefore, we're out of balance of humans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the article I was reading was, and I think it's so true, just talking about how, you know, in order to heal from from trauma, there has to be this the spiritual aspect of it. And you can't just, you know, purely heal it from a mental or emotional 
standpoint, but the, how important the spiritual aspect is as well, as far as coming over this, com- overcoming this stuff. Most of us that go through trauma um, end up with having low self-esteem or feelings of inadequacy. And so to come from that place and think that we're going to be able to find balance and, and happiness and independence and stuff, we just don't have the belief in ourselves that we can do that because of all the trauma that we've been through. You know, and so it's very important for us to know and believe that there is some sort of stronger inner self connected to a stronger, higher power. Mm-hmm. Many people call it, you know, uh, without faith that something can do better than we have done, really hard to move forward with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have quite an, an interesting story, and we're going to be getting into all of that, but. I'm curious about what was like the real aha moment for you as far as realizing the own, your own trauma that you had experienced, the um, inherited trauma that you were subjected to. When was kind of like the aha moment for you, for you really realizing that this was something that you needed to address? That's actually an interesting question. And I'm not sure how I can answer that. Um, in a nutshell, but I have a series of ongoing aha moments, mm-hmm. and that's what tells me I'm still going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe one of the biggest ones was I was in my mid 20s when I realized that my family wasn't exactly normal. <laughs> Literally in my 20s, and I looked around after being around other people and realized that that sort of stuff was not normal to them and did not go on, you know. Um, some of the stuff I'm talking about is, you know, the family secrets. You know, we're taught to don't feel, don't talk, and don't trust. And because I'm Native American, that's also intergenerational trauma. That was passed down by the boarding schools. You know, my grandmother was in Chamao Indian School back in, well, about 100 years ago. And she literally was beaten for speaking her native tongue. Um, her mouth was washed out with soap. There was every kind of abuse going on there. And so she ended up with a lot of guilt and shame, not to mention the fear involved because they were literally taking native children out of homes and just bringing them there. And the parents had no choice. So it was really traumatic. And when you grow up with fear and guilt and shame, you don't feel you're not allowed to. You're told things like big girls don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Um, You weren't allowed to express yourself. And so without being able to feel those things or show those feelings, then you suddenly couldn't talk either because you didn't know what to talk about. You're in an unfamiliar language. And so, of course, that would lead to not trusting anybody. As a result of that, the following generation was taught nothing about the culture, mm-hmm. you know, and our culture wasn't that way. It was not abusive to each other. For one thing, my tribe, the tribes up here in the Northwest, around the Puget Sound region, all lived under one roof. There was 
around 500 people under one roof, you know, in a longhouse. Wow. And it was permanent stationary on the beach, and, and we lived in the land of abundance. And so we, of course, trusted each other, and it wasn't all about self. When this trauma at the boarding schools began, you had to be introverted. You couldn't show your feelings. You didn't know who was going to tell on you for doing these things, speaking these things, feeling these ways. There's just no trust. And that builds a huge amount of fear. Never know when you're going to get beat and you don't even trust yourself. How old was your grandmother when she got sent to the school? I'm not exactly sure. Um, her mother didn't even speak English. Um, this is around a hundred years ago that she was there. Uh, so she was, would have been probably around 10, maybe, maybe early teens because it was a result of the the trauma that she was uh, in. She didn't like to talk about it. My mother, as a result, didn't get to, uh, partake in any, any of the culture because there was too much shame, too much fear involved. The whole thing of being part of a group and being part of the greater whole wasn't taught to her. And that identity being lost um, causes the intergenerational trauma. We, we no longer know who we are or what we're supposed to be. You know, there are certain things that are taught culturally to Native Americans, depending on the region that you're from, that's a set curriculum of what to teach your child developmental stages that had nothing to do with reading and writing is that this age you learn autonomy you know this age you learn identity and there's the things that have been so-called discovered in recent decades you know about how humans develop well those are things that were known for millennia because in our culture we weren't accumulating wealth we were just trying to be good people and live together and get along in our culture, we didn't have um, a monetary system. It was a giveaway system. We would accumulate things for the sole purpose of gifting them. So you can see how that would cause a huge confusion in people when suddenly the rules changed. Mm-hmm. When do you remember learning about your grandmother being sent to that school? Was that something you were aware of as a child? I was aware of that as a child. She was still uh, trying to perpetuate those teachings of the boarding school. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until later in life, just like my mother also, later in life, they started leaning back towards their Native American roots. Mm-hmm. But they thought it was the right way to be. Mm-hmm. You know, something that that's done in war all the time is you, you instill fear in somebody and repeat something over and over, and it's known as brainwashing. Yeah. And so... That constant fear, that constant abuse, that constant threat and shame with the constant message, you know, how to comply to be this different person. In the mid-1800s, just a few decades prior to that, it was a government saying, kill the Indian to save the man, Mm. you know, meaning uh, get rid of the culture. And uh, that was a policy. That was an actual policy. And so we ended up with cultural, near-cultural genocide. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the spirit isn't easily killed. And that just seems to try to come out of us. 
even if you weren't raised in the culture. I know of natives that were adopted who just naturally tend back towards that, that thing. They've been able to measure intergenerational trauma in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Now they're starting to realize that there's other intergenerational things that are measurable. Mm-hmm. Things like spiritual faith, um, cultural ways. I refer to them as ancestral memories. You know, these certain dreams that I have and things of that nature that just deep inside me somewhere is this Native American who has these other beliefs that go against the things that I was taught when I was growing up through trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what are your earliest childhood memory? That's sort of an interesting story. When I was two years old, I was hospitalized for spinal meningitis. Mm. This is in 1966 when it mostly killed people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lost my senses. I lost all five of my senses and was locked in, in my, my infant mind mm-hmm. uh, for months with no new input. And so while I was l- supposed to be learning to walk and talk, I had nothing to navigate but my spirit, nobody to talk to but my creator. And so my first memory was becoming aware of other people's presence mm. um, in a spiritual way. I couldn't see or hear that. Mm. And you recovered fully? Yeah, I'm definitely not here. Uh-huh. Well, you'll take that. You got, you got your sight back. You got your smell back. You got your taste back. Right. Yeah. Right. Part of that trauma that uh, still I uh, have struggles with at times is uh, it caused a pattern of thinking that's referred to as rumination. Yep. I stuck in my head mm-hmm. and just go around and around and around. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine at that age when you're learning to do stuff and, and mom's there and she's saying, oh, good job. And then you go on to your next thing. Well, I never had that pat on the back saying good job. So I never knew when to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was uh, that was a real struggle for me in, in early recovery because I'm in, in uh, alcohol and uh, addiction recovery. You know, mm-hmm. as an adult, I've struggled with that for a few decades. Mm-hmm. Lapsed a few times and have been healing the things that caused that that need to self-medicate. It, like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Tell me about your home. So did you grow up with a mom and a dad under the same roof? Yeah, I did. Uh, my father's non-tribal. My mother uh, was born and raised. Well, I grew up in the same house my mother grew up in, and she grew up in the same house as my grandfather did. Uh-huh. And his father built the house. It started out as a one-room dirt floor cabin. Wow. And when we moved there... As a family, my first job in life starting at about age five was to pack water up from the creek in gallon jars so we could cook something on the wood stove for breakfast. We lit the house with lanterns and we heated and cooked with the wood stove. So I grew up a little differently than average person. I'd say so. There were six of us. We ended up with six kids in our family. And, Where did you uh, fall in line? I was the second oldest. I have an older sister. Okay. And 
alcohol uh, became a factor in the home. Uh, it wasn't a good thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a good thing. And interestingly enough, my mother, uh, Native Americans sort of have a, a reputation for having problems with the alcohol. My mother was never a drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was. And all of the turmoil and uh, behaviors that revolve around an alcoholic or problem drinker were present. Mm-hmm. So we were taught things that, to example, weren't told these things, but we saw these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So therefore, my core beliefs and values had to change after I realized that what the problem was. Mm-hmm. We had relationship problems throughout my life because I had not really been shown how to be a balanced person and how to treat women with honor, mm-hmm. which in my culture on my mother's side was a thing that we were of a matriarchal system there. And women were more valued mm-hmm. and had more authority than they do to America today. Mm-hmm. Did your dad work? Off and on. My mom held the family together for the most part. And um, yeah, that's just the truth of it. He, uh, he had problems with alcohol. He had some other issues. And my mom was a rock in the family. She just, she just was. We just recently lost mom uh, about four months ago. I'm sorry. Yeah, the family's been going through some adjustment. And uh, we all have our issues as a result of what went on when we were growing up. Because there's every kind of abuse going on. Mm-hmm. I guess you could call it a pretty codependent relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, on one hand. On the other hand, somebody had to just hold the family together and get income in there. And it was on the mother. And so, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of options. If there wasn't places for women to go uh, for help in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, in the 1960s, it was a lot different. I mean, we're talking about the the equal rights movement was just beginning. You know, the uh, women's liberation was just beginning. Um, and we were way out in the sticks and it was just kind of sweep everything under the carpet. It was the mode of, of uh, operation of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, she she did the best she could, and she did really well under the cir- circumstances. The family was provided for, and most of that provision was my mother's doing. What sort of responsibility lay on you being the oldest uh, male child? Well, you see, now we can get into the dysfunctional roles of a dysfunctional Let's family. Do it. Um, because there were six of us, we altered roles and combined roles mm-hmm. because there was four basic roles, right? Uh, us older kids maybe had less issues to start because the drinkiness stuff got worse as we added children to the family. Mm-hmm. And the three oldest, uh, when it was just us, we had the nice shiny car. We had a white house with the picket fence, you know. We had mom home baking the cinnamon rolls, you know, and sending dad out to work with his nice lunch, you know. And 
and it slowly got worse as children got added as the as the pressure built, you know, on my father. How old were you when you moved into a home with electricity? Well, my dad and I actually put the electricity into that place. Okay. Wow. I was given a hammer for my fifth birthday. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, and then we didn't leave until the late 70s, you know, so it was, yeah, it was a different upbringing. And I felt really isolated from my school peers because of that. I was going to ask that. I mean, were there other Native kids that lived near you? Yeah, but we weren't really allowed to be outside your family much. We didn't have friends over. We weren't really allowed to go places. Was this based off your mother, your father? It was never really voiced, but um, pretty much my father. Um, my mother grew up there, and so she was a really social person. She was really connected with the people in the tribe, and we're really uh, affectionate to each other. You know, we hug our cousins. Our, our second and third cousins are recognized as just cousins and mm-hmm. things of that nature. Uh, my father being of a different culture and being ultra conservative, mm-hmm. shame and stuff. Uh, when we had to move into that house because he had been let go from his job at the railroad, uh, from my understanding, due to drinking, uh, things started going downhill from there. And he, he had a lot of guilt and shame. Uh, he wasn't really well received on the reservation, you know, uh, of Swedish and Irish descent. He really did not blend in very well. Uh, How did they meet? They met on the Washington State Ferry, uh, which crosses the Puget Sound. I'm not sure what the circumstances, what putting him out there was, but my dad started pursuing my mother, and uh, she told me she didn't want anything to do with him at first, but he was so insistent, or dating. I think much of it was she was attracted to the fancy sign of his new car and the worldly ways because Suquamish is a really isolated spot. And back then, it was incredibly isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't going there. and you, you couldn't be on your way to anywhere. So you're either there on purpose or lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there was literally no streetlights. I mean, it, it was really, really isolated out there. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how or why they met the circumstance, but it was on a, on a Washington State Ferry, and my father uh, pursued her. You know, I look back at pictures of her at that age, and she looks so young, mm-hmm. you know, that like, wow. I remember seeing pictures of her when she would, after she had had all six of us, and she still looked like a kid. Mm-hmm. She probably was. How old was she? She was probably younger than me. <laughs> I'm 33. How old was she when she had her sixth? Younger than that. Yeah. Oh, she had God. She had six kids in I think nine years or something. Okay. So so when they initially met and they're initially married, you're living in a different home and then your father loses his job. And so then you're forced to move on to the reservation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And when we got there, we had to actually cut bushes away from the house. To even get in it. 
Wow. It was scary. I mean, it hadn't been occupied in years. And we crawl onto this mattress underneath the stairs. Uh, there was no electricity, no nothing. And yeah, it was uh, it was poverty. It, it was poverty. We we went to, to school in a lot of shame, but we were definitely the most poverty-stricken family on the reservation. Wow. How many people lived on the reservation? It's a really small reservation. Uh, at that time, there might have been 500-year-old members of the tribe. Okay. And then, so were you at your school? Was it strictly kids from the reservation? No, certainly not. My reservation um, has been mixed and uh, the school system was, you know, run by the school district and the Native American kids are actually the minority on their own reservation. Wow. And there was prejudice. There was a lot of prejudice involved. I'm sure there would be like headlights broken out and they would check the native Americans hair for lights and nobody else. You know, I remember I always had, you know, my, my hair buzzed down and they checked my hair anyways. Like there's nowhere for the lights to be in. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. There was a lot of racism there. Uh, my mom grew up with the same racism going to the same school. Uh, these refer to her as the dumb Indian. Do you feel like it was a different experience for you, given that your father was not Native American? Like, was that how did that play into everything for you as far as your identity goes? It played in because uh, we weren't allowed to do the things that the other Native kids do, right? As a culture, we're really open and around each other a lot. Uh-huh. You know, uh, there was inter-family softball games. Um, there were clam bakes and salmon bakes on the beach and things of that nature. We never were involved in those. Because of your dad. Right, right. Um, because he didn't feel welcome. And so I grew up straddling, not quite fitting in either side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't fit in with the with the full blooded native kid, and the white kids didn't accept me either. But that's where I ended up really leaning into my dysfunctional family role as a hero. In fact, all three of its older kids really excelled academically, uh, and we're all artists. Mm-hmm. And that was the, what we had to do. We had to do it as good as we could because um, it was the one thing that made a sign, you know, and so that became part of who I was for the longest time, having to be the best at anything that I did and not being able to do that. So I ended up with the feelings of inadequacy that other hero childs mm-hmm. and families didn't grow up with, you know, because it was uh, a matter of you have to do good because you're poor. Uh, You'll make the family look bad and things of that nature. So um, my job was to uphold the family honor, which is an impossible job. When there's that much dysfunction going on, there is no honor. Mm-hmm. Right? So I ended up with this feeling of inadequacy that literally um, gave me reasons to want to self-medicate later in life mm-hmm. because uh, 
I never felt like guys are going to be good enough. Those are some of the issues that we deal with in our addiction. You know, those are some of the things that make us use uh, the things that keep the codependency cycle of uh, abuse, neglect, or uh, codependent relationships, uh, or seeking something outside of ourselves to validate us. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm assuming your dad, I mean, he must have just felt a lot of shame. I'm assuming that probably came out as rage. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not going to get into details if there's every kind of abuse. And I feel blessed that I played the role I did, you know, because uh, my younger siblings, I mean, they got to play the scapegoat, you know, just being abused could never do anything right. Uh, took the blame for everything. And part of the guilt and saying that I still hold some of is uh, trying to please my dad. I jumped on that bandwagon, mm. you know. Mm. Um, all of you know, yelling at my younger brother, you know. Um, the self-esteem there uh, became an issue, you know, that he's got to deal with, you know. And, uh, you know, and he's an accomplished man today. He's, he's done some really incredible stuff. When you have family dysfunction, it's really up to every individual to figure out what role they play, you know, to keep that primary addict or alcoholic um, or abusive person or all of them wrapped up in one uh, to keep them okay mm-hmm. because they aren't whole within themselves. Mm-hmm. I guess to play that role to satisfy different parts of them that they can't be themselves. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't learn to be whole ourselves because one, we didn't have an example. And two, we didn't have a chance to do anything for ourselves. It was all about them. Mm-hmm. And so each individual who's gone through these dysfunctional family upbringings has to come to terms themselves of what role they played, then they have to understand that that's not really who they are. That was an imposed identity. Mm -hmm. We have to find the hard things. Who are we really? Yep. Yeah. See how, see how that role is manifesting in our lives as adults and unearthing our true authentic selves. And as you were talking about earlier, there's some spiritual aspects to that. Mm Mm-hmm. Is when we get so wrapped up, especially if there's fear involved, if you're the abused one, or if you've witnessed the abuse of others, that literally keeps you triggered into the primitive part of your, your brain. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with varying degrees of different disorders, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's just a substance use disorder. Or if you end up with several others like I have, mm-hmm. um, I've actually been diagnosed with five different disorders. And I don't take medication for them because I do lean so heavily on my spirituality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So talk about what happened that led you guys to leaving the reservation when you were 14. Uh, there was some issues going on and I heard this later in life that um, people in the tribe Came aware or suspected that there was abuse going on with my sisters. 
Within the home. Within the home. And we're talking about one non-native person who already stuck out about the sore thumb, abusing Native American children. My mother came from a family of 12 children. And so I had some uncles present. And uh, it became an immediate threat to my dad's well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, what was being said that was being, that was happening. I don't actually know for sure, but um, that's what I was told by a couple of my uncles after I returned as an adult. He was just not welcome there. And the story goes that it had gotten out what he'd been doing. was uh, traveling and enrolled children. And, of course, that was when there was a loophole in the law. You know, now there's what's called VEWA with Tribal Provisions. It's the Violence Against Women's Act that was uh, passed with Tribal Provisions, meaning that it also includes tribal members and, uh, and migrant workers also. But there was a, a loop that kept people, perpetrators, from finding any consequences legally. Because my father, not being a tribal member, the tribe had no jurisdiction over him. Mm, mm-hmm. And on a reservation, the county and state had no jurisdiction. The feds had jurisdiction, but we're talking about a time when Vietnam was going on and stuff. And so domestic dispute, domestic violence. Was not their priority. <laughs> and so it was just something that just went on and there's nothing that could be done about it. Mm -hmm. That's changed. If you were to do something like that now, you get to go face a jury of our people. And I would want to be a white guy out there seeing a jury of my people uh, for abusing those people. Mm -hmm. You know, at that time there was a loophole and and non-tribal members could go there and do anything to their spouses and children. And basically not have anyone ask. And so basically someone found out about it and then it just, the, the, the threat to your dad was too much. That's what I believe. I don't know for sure. Um, my dad won't talk about it. In fact, my dad won't even admit that there was anything going on. Of course. He'll right in the face and say that, oh, that never happened. And, mm-hmm. You know, I used to lay awake at night with my pillow over my head, trying to drown it out, mm. you know, my big sister and I, I loved and adored her and you know to, to hear that happen um yeah it, it caused me some mental health issues it caused us all some serious issues you know and he was never caught and he was never um punished never punished no and he uh, he still will not even admit to it much less make an apology yeah, you know, and now here's the thing is all of his children, uh, all of his children were gifted with well above average IQs. Uh, blessed with all these different talents, you know. I'm a professional artist, I play 11 musical instruments. Uh, I could have been anything. All of us, we could have been anything. The sky was the limit. We were blessed with so much inside. And uh, because of what happened, we've had struggles Mm -hmm. we've had struggles and it is what it is i mean maybe those struggles are supposed to be there because 
there's something else that we're supposed to do, you know, but yeah. struggles were real and, and they're still there. And uh, I know that I myself am still struggling through it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm pretty happy with who I am today, but most of my life I wasn't. You know? um, most of my life I, I wished I was somebody else. Mm-hmm. This healing journey that I've been on has, uh, has made me realize, you know, that it's not all about me. You know? Some of the struggles I went through and, and as a result, being strength and listen to, um, maybe we'll put in place so that I can do something for other people. Um, mm-hmm. But the balance between being codependent and, and my culture beliefs somewhere between there, because I believe that there is an inherent balance in the universe. Um, things eventually will, you know, turn. Mm-hmm. And it's not all about me, but it's got to be about me also. You know, yeah. I just don't believe in I don't believe in absolutes. Yeah. So when you, so you leave the reservation at 14 and then do you, how far away do you guys move? We moved a few, we left the state. Okay. And at what point did, um, did drugs and alcohol come into play for you? Well, we moved from that tiny place into a a fairly large city. Uh And um, I was immediately introduced to, to drugs and alcohol. Uh, because we immediately were in the poor class and the kids were doing that thing. When I've done assessments for, you know, uh, treatment, drug and alcohol treatment, they asked me when I first started drinking. Well, I don't remember, but there's pictures of me with a beer in my mouth taking a drink when I was in diapers. Yeah. And nowadays, if you saw that, it's like, oh my God, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> It'd be a little bit concerning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, that's the hand that I was dealt. Mm-hmm. Started drinking when I was in diapers. <laughs> when did it become a regular part of your life? I started drinking alcoholically um, in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Did you graduate from high school? I didn't. I got locked up. I spent some time um, on psychiatric board and did some years. I had a complete mental breakdown. At what age? Shortly after moving, I was 14 years old. Uh What happened? I'm just going to leave it at I had a complete mental breakdown. Okay. Um, And I was committed to a state hospital. Which must have been extremely traumatic. Was it for was it adolescent or were you on an adult unit? No, I, I, it was adolescent. Um, and this is going to sound weird, but it was actually one of the happiest times of my life. <laughs> it was uh, for the first time in my life that I could remember. Uh, I was getting hugs and stuff. I was getting nurtured. It was the first safe environment I had ever been in. That's wonderful because, I mean, you hear horror stories about places like that. Yeah, well, it's wonderful or just how <laughs> bad it was, but that was a wonderful. Very true. Good point. <laughs> Touche. I did learn, I did learn group processing. You know, I did get comfortable with therapy. Uh, I did learn to be in touch with my feelings. Uh I got in on the ground floor of uh, certain things that were going on in the late 70s, you know, um, 
as far as uh, treatment philosophies and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was introduced to rational emotive therapy, RET, um, during that time, um, which put me in touch with my feelings. And, and uh, so I wasn't one of these guys who didn't understand why I was doing these things. You know, like many people's addiction uh, issues just don't realize that, you know, there's a reason that you're doing this other than, you know, you want to because we start out saying that, oh, well, I, I choose to, when really there becomes a point where we would rather not, mm-hmm. it's no longer fun mm-hmm. that we tell ourselves that. Yeah. I always like to say it's, it's first it's fun, then it's fun with problems and then it's just problems. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm. And then many people quit, you know, quit whatever it is that they're doing, but the problems are still there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's where we get into taking a look at what kind of trauma we've been through mm-hmm. and understanding, okay, how this, how did this affect my my development? How did this affect my identity? You know, um, both past and present. You know, we try not to future trip or dwell on the past, but it's important to see both those things so that we can understand whether we're where we want to be or need to be now and what adjustments we can make now because that connection of the past and the future is now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. To be who we want to be unless we are mindful of what's going on now. And that was a hard thing to learn. Because mm-hmm. when you come from a place where you feel, don't trust, don't talk, that's a big leap. Because you have to do all three of those things to address the issues of trauma. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was really first starting to dive into all this adult child stuff and my dad talking about going to therapy and my dad just being like, you know, you just <laughs> you just have to move on from that shit. I'm like, if only it were that easy. <laughs> We have to look at the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are in order to change. And unfortunately, in my opinion, that's the only way to do it. Yeah, it really is. You know, human beings are created as social creatures Mm -hmm. and life, any living thing. Life, I like to tell people, wouldn't it be cute if we had our own little life? You know, but life is this giant, huge thing that we're blessed to be part of. It's much bigger than any one of us. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, therefore, it's connected. You know, we're, we're all connected. And when we start doing things that separate us, it almost always goes bad. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, have, you know, all things that, are, are, that involve separation from, um, from the rest of society causes us incredible immense pain. Mm-hmm. For that reason, all the things that are good and healing and growing, in my experience, I should say, are all about connection, you know, whether it be a church fellowship, uh, uh, belonging to uh, a certain team sports, you know, I mean, something that gives you camaraderie, um, fellowship in St. Fallset meetings or other recovery stuff. It's all about that connection, you know, so that it's that feeling of differentness and isolation that sends us so sideways. Absolutely. You know, when we can start talking about these things um, and understanding how we feel about things, 
to the point where we can share it with somebody else, then we understand that, wow, I'm not really alone in this. You know, because that alone feeling is something that not only might start us into drugs and alcohol or whatever other issues we may have, it also will perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. You know, find yourself out under a bridge mm-hmm. with nobody and nowhere. And I've been there. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you spend that time locked up. 20s is when alcohol really becomes an issue for you. And then I think that you had mentioned that then you were, I guess you, you spent some time in prison. Yeah. Um, I went into drugs. I drank for a while and then I went into drugs. Uh, I became a meth addict. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which is really big in the native culture, isn't it? Well, no, I was in the city when this went okay. on and it, now it's big, but then, uh, in the 1980s, it was a really kind of a secret. You're a trendsetter. <laughs> no, actually, when I went back to the reservation, uh, I was appalled that it was even there. I went into the meth addiction and stuff in the city uh, in my early 20s, and much of the problem there was that I didn't realize just how radical and insane it was to stick a needle in my neck mm-hmm. because I spent time on a psychiatric ward where lunacy had become the norm, you know, and that's the unfortunate thing about childhood trauma is um, it becomes normalized. And so we're not faced by things that other people are, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So what I thought was just out there having fun was just, craziness so after a couple few years of uh being high on meth i started robbing banks and things like that you know and that's what i went to prison for as an adult to start um i thought it was okay to rob banks and armored cars and i had no clue that that wasn't normal that wasn't normal yeah man i can't imagine the rush doing that for the very first time See, that's exactly it. Um, I had done so much um, narcotics in such large amounts, um, injecting it into my neck, Mm. trying to get the biggest rush that I could. I got to the point where I just get that rush anymore. So I went for the adrenaline rush. And yes, I'm in a bank, it is a rush. Man, how many banks did you rob prior to getting sent to prison? Well, I was granted immunity um, for for uh, pleading guilty to the ones mm-hmm. that I did. So I can say um, I robbed 11 banks. Wow. Jeez. But part of the plea bargain was that I would get immunity to any other bank robberies and related crimes if I pled guilty to the certain ones. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot. So what was your state of mind? As soon as you're you're getting locked up, you're facing a pretty large sentence. Was this like, okay, something needs to change? Or was it, this is just the way that life's going to be? For the longest time, I just thought that was the life that I had. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do out here. You know, when, when, I hit, when I hit freedom at age 21, I hadn't went to school. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't go on our first aid. I didn't have my first car. I didn't have my first job. I didn't go to the prom. I didn't, none of those things. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to do any of those. You know, I didn't know how to look for a job. Uh, I knew how to be told told what to do. You know, I knew how to be the tough guy to be safe. I knew how to be violent and threatening so that I was safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I had normalized this situation. You know, so where the, I didn't feel safe out here. The thrill-seeking behavior I went into after I was in my 20s, um, I think much of it was subconsciously trying to put me back in that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I have to worry about getting a job or paying rent or, or mm-hmm. what to do. Mm-hmm. I become institutionalized. And so then was there a significant shift or pivot while you were locked up? Yeah. Um, my my favorite person in the world uh, uh, contracted HIV was sitting in a federal prison. And this was back in the early 90s when there was... It was a death sentence. Yeah. Right. And she was my best friend for a lot of years. We, we met on that psychiatric ward. It was a co-ed ward for um, adolescents. And she was somebody who saw me for other than the exterior that I projected. Mm-hmm. When she was going to die from this, I decided that it was no longer fun. So... I put myself into treatment prior to leaving prison and I released straight into treatment because I knew that I knew that it was just a horrible thing. How could somebody who is such a beautiful person in my eyes have to die at such a young age? And, and I knew, you know, that it was because of the drug. Mm-hmm. The point where it's so important, you're not worrying about whether you're doing it safely or not. Mm-hmm. We sacrifice everything for our addiction. Mm-hmm. We want so badly to cover up things that happened to us in the past and things that are within us and our different feelings of inadequacy and our, our trauma and our fear and all those things. We want to run from them and hide from them so bad because they're just so intense. Because by then we've noticed that this isn't what the rest of the world is to have, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So then so we're all in with it, and we disregard warnings, mm-hmm. we disregard caution, we just do, it becomes our everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had been off of it long enough while I was sitting in there, you know, in a cell that I saw it for what it was, mm-hmm. you know. But I still didn't know how to do anything different. I had been basically raised in a dysfunctional family with abuse. I went from that into a psychiatric ward, which is really sort of similar. <laughs> uh, except it became my comfort zone because the staff there are, you know, there to professionally care and, mm-hmm. and, and heal stuff. And so um, the blessing in all that is later in life, I was able to recover, um, embrace the recovery process mm. during 12, 17, and uh, I was comfortable opening up to other people. Mm-hmm. That was the, the, the whole saving grace of all. 
Yeah. I have a very similar experience for me too. Um, I think so too. Yeah. I mean, I got sent to therapy the first time at nine, you know, rehab for the first time at 14 in 12 step meetings since the age of 13. So I too feel very comfortable, um, and, and opening up maybe a little too comfortable. <laughs> we, I host these groups for my, for the, my podcast listeners. And we were talking about that, about just how we're oversharers and you know, sit down at a restaurant, start talking to a random person and just <laughs> start talking about our drama and freak people out. <laughs> yeah. Boundary issues. Mm-hmm. You know, people many times you know, we talk about boundaries and we talk about setting boundaries for other people, but mm-hmm. we also have to set boundaries for ourselves because other people are like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> my problem though, is that half the amount of times I've done that it's turned into like a very beautiful spiritual experience. You know, I think I'm just going to be mindful to not do that on first dates is what, you know, any other time, whatever, but maybe not on a first date. <laughs> Well, I'm the same way. Yeah. I tend to be transparent with people that um, that's the test. If you can get past my, uh, hi, how are you? Guess what I've done in my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ain't got time for small talk. I ain't got time for fluff. <laughs> you know, and my whole thing with that is, uh, is increased because, you know, when you're doing time, mm. when you're incarcerated, you get to know somebody very quickly. If you're in a six by nine cell with somebody, mm-hmm. you know, 20 hours a day, um, you get to know somebody very quickly and, uh, and, and intimately, you know, you, you get to, to know them. And so it causes boundary issues. The lady I'm seeing now, we've, uh, we met a year ago and we started our relationship uh, as a recovery-based relationship. We've both been through trauma. We've both been through the intergenerational trauma. Both been through cross-cultural trauma. And uh, it was just literally, and I'm in my 50s, you know, I'll be 58 this year. Literally the first time I've ever taken a woman out on an actual date. Wow. What'd you do? Well, we did in the movies and stuff like that. We got to be friends first and we started dating and um, she just moved over from uh, South Dakota recently. Um, we were apart for a few months, and yeah, it's a uh, it's a wonderful feeling. So you know, this is a never-ending journey, right? And we go through seasons and post-prison. What have been some significant phases or stages of your healing journey? I've been out of prison for twenty-five years now. And how long have you been sober? Because you mentioned you had a few relapses. I've got a total of 10 years under my belt, but I've, I've had a couple of relapses. Last year, I relapsed three times. Um, and, you know, they say that relapses can be part of your recovery. Uh, I didn't realize just how dependent I was on meetings, you know, actually avoiding some of my core issues during the meetings on daily, you know. Um, in terms of the fact that I'm not usually comfortable being around myself only. Mm-hmm. That I have trouble with rumination. I get going around and around in my head and don't know how to stop, didn't know how to stop myself. One of the things that I used a lot is uh, dialectical behavior therapy. I've learned some of those tools really well. I, I would just get stuck in my head and 
but I wasn't able to go to meetings and fellowship with other people and talk with people who understood things. So when the, the pandemic hit and they shut down live meetings, mm. um, it was detrimental to me as well as it was many people in for all different reasons across the, the planet. It's not all about me. In the last few years, I've, I've really had to understand that part, you know, because mm-hmm. as someone who's gone through trauma, when you're going through trauma, you've got that fear and that survival and, and things like that going on, um, which is hardwired as part of our primitive thinking and a primitive part of our brain. The Olympic system. Human beings have a further developed frontal cortex. Mm-hmm. And in that, we have social morals. We have things like faith and empathy. We have things that have nothing to do with survival coming out of that part of our brain. If you spend enough time in an unsafe situation, um, I mean, that's my biggest struggle is PTSD, and it can still be triggered. I spent a lot of time keeping that at bay. That's something that was uh, a big cornerstone in, in my journey is realizing, um, getting educated in the different aspects of my my mind, you know, my thinking, and in the different aspects of, of self. Because for me, being in my head is, a, is the worst place to be. Mm-hmm. There's other people going inward is the place to go. Mm. We're all the same, but we're all different. And that's that inherent balance that I was talking about earlier. There are no absolutes. You know, everything changes. That's an inherent truth. Mm-hmm. Down to the molecular level, we're changing all the time. You know, when we lose the ability to go with that change, mm-hmm. That's when we get stuck. And when we're fighting that, we're fighting the force of life itself. Mm-hmm. Rather than say, you know, self-talks feel important, rather than say things like change is hard, it's like change is unavoidable. So we might as well embrace it. And once we embrace it and realize that we can steer that change, we can change in the direction that we want it to. And so that was really freeing. But I came to that conclusion. Uh, and I wasn't fighting like any. Uh, and they talk about surrender in the 12 step programs and stuff like that. Um, I finally came to an understanding what that meant. Mm-hmm. Most of my life has been a struggle. I'm tired of struggling, I'm tired of fighting. You know? and so rather than try to force things to be my way, I kind of try to guide it in the direction that I can accept a little more easily. And then I flex enough so that I can meet it halfway. Mm-hmm. And, and that I find truth and that that's where I get my most healing and growth from. Mm-hmm. What sort of um, triggers or things have been coming up for you being in this relationship? One of the things that I, because she too went through a relapse. Well, she was fresh out of the relapse. And I thought I was pretty solid. <laughs> Being around her when I had never been around her like that, um, mm-hmm. coming off of the uh, out of the addiction, um, her issues and disorders being triggered, I saw a side of her that I didn't know. It was scary, and um, 
I immediately thought, I knew it. Because I was like, yay, I finally got somebody that I can understand at this grassroots level. And now suddenly we're on different pages. And so because of the way that I have uh, done things in the past, I immediately catastrophized it. I knew it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to last. It was too good to be true. I've worked through those things and I realized that something that people really, I think, make a mistake about relationships. They think that, okay, I'm going to go over here and fix me. I'm going to fix me. And when I'm all fixed and healed, then I can go have a relationship. Relationships take more than one person. Yeah. And so each one is different. And so we have to learn how to have that relationship with the person that we're having. We can't illusion or delusion ourselves into thinking that we're going to go fix ourselves and we're just going to be able to automatically have a good relationship. Um, I'm good at a lot of things. You know, I've picked up a lot of skills and a lot of talents in my life and owned a lot of talents. There are many things that I'm really good at and none of which that I just instantly become good at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I was young, I was an introvert. I was just scared death of talking to people. I was especially afraid of women. And it took practice. It took, took practice to be able to communicate on different levels. It took practice um, having empathy for other people and engaging, okay, what am I saying here? Is this going to be cool to say or not? You know, those boundary issues. So, this relationship thing is going to take practice too because the relationship that I was shown when I was developing my core beliefs and value system as a young child was not conducive to peace and serenity at all. You know, and so now I've got this new core beliefs and values and I have to keep my behavior aligned with them and it's trial and error. So I, I have to say, okay, I didn't do that part. Why? And why is that? What was the feeling that made me act like that? And what are the thoughts behind that feeling? And where did those thoughts come from? That came from that wounded inner child who doesn't get to drive the car anymore, David. You know? And so I have to, through self-talk, um, teach myself a lesson about it. You know, and I can't do it in a beautiful way. I can't kick myself for doing it wrong because I simply did not do it. But now I know what not to do. Many of us who go through trauma, the person or event that traumatizes never gets to take any accountability. And we carry that shame and we carry that inadequacy and it's not even ours to have, you know, because accountability mm-hmm. is never, never there whether it be actual abuse or just neglect or even unintentional neglect or, you know, I mean, there's all different levels and all of us are different. What is neglect and abuse to some people is nothing to others, you know. We all have our own different spirit. Hurtful to one person's spirit, maybe there's nothing to another's. Is there anything, philosophies, thought process, healing methods, um, Related to addiction or trauma from a native perspective that you feel like would be beneficial for people to hear about or learn? I'm a member of the Well Variety Movement. 
a culturally based movement to address addiction and other other issues um, in Native America. And the 12 steps are included in it, but much of it is culturally based on the teachings of the Medicine Bill, which talks about the four aspects of self, the mm-hmm. spiritual, the mental, the emotional, and the physical. And it's taught in that system that one needs to keep those things in balance. And that if you get leaning too far in one direction or the other, you go careening out of control. Mm-hmm. And so if you get stuck too far in your head and thinking about things, um, you do something to get out of your head. If I'm being really emotional um, mm-hmm. and I'm leaning in that direction, then I, I stop and I analytically think and use my cognition to balance out that emotion. I try to keep myself in balance so I'm not leaning too far in one direction or the other. Um, because as human beings, we do have those four aspects. You know, and many people struggle to spiritual aspect of ourselves. The way that I explain it to people that aren't naturally or not um, practiced in spirituality is that human beings have two different kinds of feelings. There's emotions, which emotus or cause motion or motivate, right? Um, and what they do is they tell us something important to make us engage in a specific behavior. It's an information system that we have. That's an emotional feeling. But there are other feelings, and these are called spiritual feelings. Things like empathy, faith. Things like, like having a hunt causing us to have a physical reaction to you, have a certain behavior there on the spot. And those are spiritual things. So when we do things uh, that will engage that kind of feeling, we're engaging our spirit. So when I tell people that I try to follow my spirit, it's not a thinking or seeing type of thing. You know, I'm literally just kind of it's almost like feeling my way in the dark. Mm. Just kind of tell whether I'm in the right place or not. And that's a hard thing to hone for some people. You know, um, mm-hmm. I just I describe faith as knowledge without proof. Many of us have a hard time wanting to know something unless we can prove it. When we can overcome that concrete thinking. Then we're on the right track. You know, and some of the meetings I go to, they say um, the one thing that can defeat us in our recovery is an attitude of indifference or intolerance to spiritual principles. So, yeah. um, so what do you got planned? You got a bunch of things going on. You're making art, you're writing a book, you're studying. Big, big things on the horizon for you, sir. Um, I have this philosophy. Um, I look at my compass and my odometer. I I try not to worry about what little I have at the age I am, right? Mm-hmm. I look at how far I've come, not how far I have to go, and whether I'm going in the right direction. Now, today, and for several days now, <laughs> I've been heading in the right direction, and I'm... I'm gaining mileage in that right direction. 
And as long as I look at that, then I don't have to be afraid of how far I have to go. Do you want to be found? Do you want people to reach out to you or anything like that? I can be found on Facebook. Okay. I've got some followers on social media that I've been inspiration out there. Many of them have been following me for years and they've actually seen me struggle and pick myself back up, struggle and pick myself back up. And every day I get up and say, today is a good day to have a good day. Mm. Today is a good day to have a good day. You hear that, everybody? I've never met a day yet that was a good day to have a bad day. For some reason, I insist on having bad days sometimes, but it's never a good day to have a bad day. It's always a good day to have a good day, especially when things are going wrong. That's when you need the good day the most, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I think that that is a perfect note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been quite a pleasure. I'm so excited for people to hear this. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate talking to you. And though you're tired of waiting, hold your patience, because the change going to come. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, you're welcome. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to David. Um, that He is quite a inspirational human. So check out the the show notes if you're interested in following him on his journey. Uh, next week, I don't know. I, I have a, I need to see. I have a few interviews lined up, but uh, it's going to be good regardless. And also this shit show Saturday, I'm going to include a portion of um, a, a recent Patreon group. So I think I'm going to do that probably once a month on Shit Show Saturday. I'll play a part of one of these peer support groups so you guys can hear what the hell is going on there and why you should join the Patreon. Uh, okay, guys, I will see you next week for another amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good day, I promise. Just let it all go. What's making you slow now? Just let it all go.